0: So I know that this isn't technically German music, and therefore I'm cheating a little bit on this one, but this is the last movement of Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique, yet another grand romantic symphony, uh, but this is the famous movement, the Night of the Witch's Sabbath, which, come on, like, we're going to talk about World this night, so of course I'm going to play one of the, you know, Halloweeny, scary, romantic, uh, symphonic pieces Um, this is meant to sort of be just silly and fun and also a little occult, and Berlioz came under a little bit of fire for this particular number. Um, but it's also a really interesting piece, the Symphony Fantastique, because he uses the same melody through all five movements, all in very different tones and all with very different structures surrounding them. Like, one is a march, one is sort of a pastoral, calm symphony, and this one is just silly and fun and creepy a little bit. He has a bunch of little flourishes that make it especially sort of spooky in the line of, like, Zorksky's Night of the Bald Mountain or something, which we'll probably talk about later. So it seems an appropriate compliment to Faust and Mephistopheles bumming around with all those crazy Satanists and witches on Walpurgis Night when, you know, they should probably be paying attention to Gretchen. But, oh well. What's the worst that could happen? Man, this lecture is always a punch in the gut for me. So we've made it through the first 3 quarters of Faust part 1 and here we finally reach the conclusion and it is wild. Like man, it gets super real in that prison cell um between all of the insanity of Margareta and you know her final reunion with Faust and oh my gosh, it's nuts. But at the same time it's just crazy like right here at the the highest peak the climax of the story like margarita slash gretchen is falling apart because you know her brother is dead and her mother is dead and like everything is falling apart around her and let's all have a big exciting trip to walpergus night and hang out with the witches and you know do some satire and have this weird dream where nothing makes sense and none of the characters like it's just i don't even know um, this whole passage is just nuts. Um, so let's break it down as much as we can and talk through just this wild section of, of Goethe's Faust. Um, so when last we left off, I, I emphasized that like Faust and Gretchen were coming together. They, they were finally like ready to consummate their love, but at the same time there was a pall hanging over it that we know... From, you know, the wager that Faust can't actually commit to live his life with Gretchen. That's just not on the table for him. He is doomed at this point to ruin her life. She has given too much to him and therefore there's no way out for her. Like, everything is just spiraling into this obvious, horrible climax that we're all anticipating. Um, And things get off to a pretty bad start. Um, at first we have this little scene at the well, um, and I don't want to dwell too much on it, but I do want to point out, like, you have this conversation between Leeson and Gretchen. Um, Leeson, not Martha. Like, it's important that Martha, who is familiar with the world, she is a worldly woman, she has known love, she has apparently had, perhaps, extramarital affairs against her husband, um, Unlike her, Leishan is more of what Gretchen used to be. Like Margarita, she was pure. Um, She had not slept with a man. She was saving herself. And notice how judgmental Leishan is about their friend Barbara. Um, She says, well, it's true, she's done it at last. Sybil told me today, made a fool of herself. That's always the way with those airs and graces. There's two to feed now when she eats and drinks. Apparently Barbara has become pregnant. Uh, She was hanging out too much with that young suitor of hers... And notice that Leishan does not forgive her. Like, Leishan is really vicious to this to this poor woman. And serve her right at last, I say. Throwing herself at the lad for so long. Always on his arm. Always walking along. Off to the villages. Off to the dance. Oh, she had nigh to the main chance. Such a beauty, of course. She must lead the way. He courts her with pastries and wine every day. She's even so shameless, the little minx, that she can accept presents from him, she thinks. Cuddling and petting, hour by hour, well. Now she's lost her little flower. Now when Gretchen sympathizes with her poor thing she says Lechen's jumps on her don't tell me you're sorry for her why all the rest of us that we were spinning our mother's not letting us out in the evenings while she's sitting about in dark doorways with her fancy man lingering in alleys as long as they can well now she'll have her church penance to do and sit in her smock on the sinner's pew. Lechen has no patience for Barbara's misdeed. Gretchen does, because at this point Gretchen understands it. Like, notice that Gert is actually, you know, he's not condemning anyone here. Leishan is wrong in the way that Goethe presents it to sort of jump on poor Barbara. Gretchen instead is now more sympathetic. Um, so Gretchen even mentions, as she's leaving Leishan alone, what angry things I used to say when some poor girl had gone astray. I used to rack my brains to find words to condemn sins of that kind. Blacker than black, they seemed to me, and worse still not black enough for me. And I crossed myself and made such a to-do that now that sin of others is my sin too. Oh God, but all that made me do it was good. Such dear love drove me to it. Notice that Goethe is not judgmental of a woman who has lost her virtue as it is usually framed like leishan sees this as a vicious sin and comeuppance and you know while she was at home being protected by her mother told that she wasn't allowed to go out well now those chickens have come home to roost now leishan's mother and leishan's behavior is justified barbara has humiliated herself barbara has destroyed herself and gretchen knows she has as well But Gretchen looks at herself and says, it was only love that drove me to do it. Goethe is making a pretty strong social claim here. He is seriously questioning the whole assumption that women should protect their virtue, that sex is something shameful. He's challenging the entire social structure surrounding marriage at this point. He sees Gretchen as being justified here. It was just love that drove her. Yes, Faust is going to destroy her, and Faust is totally wrong to do that. Faust is a liar and a monster and a whole bunch of other stuff. But Gretchen, Gretchen didn't do anything wrong. She was tempted away from, you know, the path of Christian virtue, but it was only love that did. Gretchen is blameless, is what Goethe is saying here. All of the horrible things that transpire, all of what will ultimately destroy Gretchen... You know, tragedy after tragedy is the rest of the story is going to contain. Goethe is putting it in the context that Gretchen is the victim, not the perpetrator. She was used by Faust. She was condemned by her brother. She was rejected by society. But Gretchen herself only did what she did out of love. Only did what she did out of a good, moral, selfless reason. Um... Goethe is taking the romantic stance, not just in the sense of, like, romantic as romance, but romantic as, you know, this art movement that's that's sort of hovering over this whole text. He is stressing that there's nothing wrong with love. There's nothing wrong with sex as a consummation of love. What's wrong is what we do to the people who do that. What is wrong is Leishan condemning Barbara without knowing what it feels like to feel a passion for another person. What was wrong was Gretchen condemning people before she understood it, but now she does. Now that she has loved, she can't see what she did wrong in this, because she didn't do anything wrong. She is a victim, not the perpetrator. And the fact that Goethe makes her out to be a victim stresses that there is change in the wind. Women are not going to be held responsible the way that they used to be. And yes, they will. Like, to this day, we talk about slut-shaming. And we are trying to sort of get rid of those old assumptions, to sort of move past it. Gerda agrees. Gerda is specifically in this scene saying that slut-shaming is wrong. um, That... Margarita should be seen as a person. Her decisions as far as her love for another person or how she wants to use her sexuality, those are hers. Hers to choose. And on some level, I imagine that Goethe would go farther if he felt confident enough doing it. There are enough loose women in this book who are not condemned for their looseness, like the witches, for example, Gertrude seems to be perfectly on board with their sexuality being expressed however they want to. He seems to be much more in favor of women using their sexuality according to their desires, not according to the way that society seems to think they should belong. So keep that in mind as we go forward. Like, Gretchen is ultimately, you know, going to have horrible things happen to her, and she's going to be thrown in prison for her crime, but she's not bad, and in fact, like the text is going to bear her out on some level by the end of this, but we'll we'll come back to this as as things sort of accelerate. Um, the next thing we definitely need to talk about is the scene with Valentine. Uh, Valentine is Gretchen's brother, and as we said, he's been missing for basically all of this text. He is a soldier; he was off to war. Um, except that there probably wasn't a war typically in the 18th and 19th centuries like being a career soldier was a pretty normal thing for a young man and from a noble family to do um especially if they weren't rich enough to like you know be independently wealthy and have their own estate to manage and stuff like that um you would go off become a soldier you'd make your money you'd drink it all up or gamble it away and basically just have a good time with your buddies um Officers typically did not have a terribly bad time of being a soldier. Um, and there's a sort of complex relationship there, that they were often idling their time away. But, you know, when in fact war happened, like if there was in fact combat, that changed things pretty quickly. So you should keep in mind that Valentine isn't a, you know well-received veteran coming back from a life of service he is probably closer to an idler who has like found a sort of way to get along in life without too much responsibility Um, he's basically loafing around most of his time Um, and you can even see this in the way that he sort of introduces himself Um, you'll notice at the beginning of scene 22, he says, I used to drink with the other chaps, that's when one likes to boast. Perhaps they'd start to sing their girlfriends' praises, all lovely girls, like a ring of roses, and round and round the full toasts went. I'd sit there, calm and confident, with my elbows on the tabletop. Sit there and stroke my beard, meanwhile, wait for their blethering to stop. Then fill my glass, and with a smile I'd say, All honor, where honor's due in this whole land is there one girl who can compare with Meg, my sister so sweet, one worthy to fasten the shoes to her feet then clink, the toast went round again and some of the fellows exclaimed he's right, she's the pride of her sex she's the heart's delight notice first that Valentine is immediately speaking to hanging out with his friends, getting drunk, gambling, drinking together, and talking about their girlfriends, talking about the women in their life. And they would all talk about how great their women were, how faithful they were, how loyal they were, how they protected their virtue, how they only slept with, you know, these guys, these boyfriends of theirs. And then there'd be Valentine, and he'd be able to top them all because he'd say, hey, my sister is better than all of them. And remember, what we know about Gretchen, this is true. Like, she has been 100% faithful to her family. She has absolutely been, you know, taking care of the household. She raised that younger sister of hers before she died. Like, she is truly a great person. Like, I don't mean that lightly. We talked about it last time. But notice, Valentine isn't celebrating her greatness for her sake. He's celebrating her greatness for his sake. He gets to brag and boast to his friends about how awesome his sister is. And there's something kind of messed up about this. Like, this would not be abnormal in the time that Goethe is writing about. Like, read any accounts of, you know, soldiers in the the late 18th and 19th century, and this is fairly normal behavior. Some writers even don't seem to have a problem with it. Like, if you read the works of Pushkin, he celebrates this stuff all the time in the Russian army. but Goethe... Goethe's specifically portraying Valentine as being kind of selfish here. He admits that he is boasting, and he talks about how he is ultimately just saying this to put boasters and praisers to shame. Um, there is no girl greater than my sister has much more to do with Valentine being able to one-up his friends than actually being able to talk about how great his sister is. And you can tell this especially because of the reaction that Valentin has once he starts to hear these rumors that Gretchen has been sleeping with Faust. So he says, and now, what now? Shall I tear my hair? Shall I run up the walls? I could despair. Every one of those blackguards now is free to sneer and wrinkle his nose at me. I must sweat like a debtor who can't pay at each chance remark that drops my way. Valentine isn't concerned with his sister he's concerned with his honor he is no longer able to stand up tall in his drinking games with his friends and say hey my sister is the best now all of his friends are like oh she's the best huh Well, have you heard of who she's in now like Valentine is ashamed on his sister's behalf again it's the social obligation that's coming in the way here um, just as Gerta was quick to point out that, you know, Gretchen is now reevaluating how she sees women of fallen virtue, so to speak, here we see a re-emphasis of that. Like Letian, Valentine is not willing to forgive the slight to Gretchen's honor. He is angry with her for sleeping with a man, um, even though, you know, apparently under marriage that would be perfectly acceptable behavior. But notice, too, the way that this scene plays out from Faust and Mephistopheles' standpoint. Here we have Faust coming up to to Gretchen's window playing music for her, and this should look really familiar. This is absolutely the same as the opening of Don Giovanni, Mozart's opera about Don Juan. Um, it's not the same as, um, as Moliere's version. Remember, Moliere cuts out the scene where Don Juan initially seduces the commendatory's daughter. Note, here we have this very same scene, this seduction scene, but instead of Faust coming out of the window, he's getting ready to go in. And as this is happening, as Mephistopheles is singing and they're seducing Gretchen, here comes Valentine. Who are you serenading here, he asks, damned rat catcher. The devil, take your zither first. God's blood, I'll make him take the singer next, you hear? Valentine is looking for a fight. Here are these men who have been seducing his sister, ruining his honor, spoiling his good time with his military buddies. So as soldiers at this time do, they immediately are challenged to a duel. So Valentine says, now draw and there will be corpses made. He pulls out his sword, and Mephistopheles assures Faust, Doctor, don't back away. Now quick, keep close to me. Move as I do. Come out. Out with your tickle stick. Now lunge, I'll parry him for you. And he does. You have this strange fight where Faust is sort of doing all of the work. He is the one with the footwork and the the sword, but it's Mephistopheles who's guiding him all the way through some supernatural prowess, or literally like he's physically moving the sword for him. And he's blocking like, Valentine will thrust, and Mephistopheles parries it. And Valentine attacks, and Mephistopheles blocks him. And finally, we have Mephistopheles to Faust strike now, and Valentine is struck and falls. Faust stabs Valentine with Mephistopheles' help, and they take off. Just like Don Juan and Leporello at the beginning of Don Giovanni. Just like most versions of Don Juan all the way back to the Terso play. Here is the same scene. Here is Don Juan seducing his beloved. All of a sudden, they are interrupted by a family member of the beloved. They are, fight a duel. Don Juan strikes down the family member and then takes off into the night. Faust does the exact same thing here. The scene is beat for beat, the same as what we saw with Don Giovanni. So they take off, and Valentine is lying bleeding in the street. And at this point, Gretchen does in fact come to her window and... She's really upset, for good reason. She says, who's lying there? And the crowd responds, your mother's son. And Gretchen says, oh God in heaven, what have they done? She realizes her lover has just killed her brother. So she rushes down, but instead of getting consolation, as we would expect from, you know, like the commander, notice what Valentine says. Meg, listen, you're still a poor young chit, you've not yet got the hang of it, you're bungling things, do you see? Just let me tell you in confidence, since you're a whore now, have some sense and do it properly. Leave God out of this little scene. What's done is done, I'm sorry to say, and things must go their usual way. You started in secret with one man. Soon others will come, where he began, and when a dozen have joined the queue, the whole town will be having you. Let me tell you about disgrace, he says. It enters the world as a secret shame, born in the dark without a name. With the hood of night about its face, it's something that you'll long to kill, but as it grows, it makes its way even into the light of day. It's bigger, but it's ugly still, the filthier its face has grown the more it must be seen and shown notice the two sides to what valentine is saying here on the one hand he is immediately accusing her you were a whore now he says you slept with one man and now all the other men are going to come knocking going to come expecting you to sleep with them too soon it's going to be the whole town in your bed and notice that this is not even a little bit fair Like, Valentin's totally wrong. Margarita isn't sleeping with Faust because she just wants to have sex. She is really devoted to him. Just as, you know, the king in Thule is devoted to the cup that he drinks from, this is how Margarita sees her relationship to Faust. She sees him as her beloved. She loves him. She is true to him, faithful to him. He is the only man in her life. The fact that they're not married is admittedly a problem in this society and she was probably, you know, a little fast on the draw there not to, you know, wait until she had guaranteed his promise. But even so, it's only from love that she asks, that she acts this way. She's not going to sleep with all of the members of the town. She's not going to just, like, give herself to any man who walks by, but Valentine immediately accuses her of this. But the second part, where Valentine starts talking about the way that disgrace works, how it's a secret shame, but it grows in the night until it comes out into the light of day, bigger and ugly, filthy, and now it's seen and shown, and it can't be avoided. There will come a time, he says, and this I know, all decent folk will abhor you so, you slut, that like a plague-infected corpse, you'll be shunned, you'll be rejected, they'll look at you and your heart will quail, their eyes will all tell the same tale. On the one hand, he's judgmental. He absolutely accuses her. He absolutely faults her. But he also talks about disgrace in this observational perspective. This is what happens. This is what is going to happen to you. Now that you are even a little bit disgraced, that disgrace is going to swell and grow, and eventually you're not going to be able to show your face in public. You will be shunned, like you are infected with the plague. You will be rejected. You'll have no gold, no jewelry. You'll never stand in church. You'll not have pretty lace. You'll not be able to do anything in public, but instead into some dark corner may you creep among beggars and cripples to hide and weep. But at the same time, Valentine supports this. This is correct from Valentine's standpoint. And he concludes, Let God forgive you as he may, but on earth be cursed till your dying day. Valentine, with his last breath, curses margarita and martha is even upset about this commend your soul to god's mercy too will you die with blasphemy on you like at the, this is the moment that valentine is going to die the logical thing for him to do is to ask forgiveness to forgive others to you know go to heaven with an easy conscience but valentine refuses no he curses his sister vile hag vile bawd, if i could take you by the skinny throat and shake the life out of you that alone for all my sins it would atone he wants to strangle her. Now, finally, Gretchen says, Oh, brother, how can I bear it? How? And Valentine says, I tell you, tears won't mend things now. When you and your honor came to part, that's when you stabbed me to the heart. I'll meet my maker presently as the soldier I'm still proud to be. He accuses Gretchen of killing him. He lays that at her feet. He says, your blood is on, or my blood is on your hands. You did this to me. When you slept with that man, you as surely stabbed me as any as he did. You killed me every bit as much as he did. You were responsible for this. May you be cursed. I would strangle you if I had the chance. Valentine absolutely condemns Gretchen. And it's not fair. Like, Gretchen followed her heart. Gretchen did what was right. That is what Goethe is portraying her as. Goethe departs from the way that Christians have usually seen women who sleep with men out of wedlock. He says, no, that was love, and therefore it's justified, it's vindicated. Gretchen was, if anything, a little intemperate, a little hasty, but what she did, she did from love. Why is she being condemned this way? And yet he observes that society is absolutely going to treat her this way. Her brother condemns her for the for the slight to his honor not even hers society rejects her they cast her out and in the scenes to come we'll see that what's more notice that this isn't the only death laid to gretchen's account in the cathedral the spirit comes to her and starts to speak to her, this evil spirit tempting her in it, in its own right. How different things were for you, Gretchen, when you were still all innocence, approaching that altar, lisping prayers from your little worn prayer book. Your heart had nothing in it but God and child's play. Gretchen, what are you thinking? What misdeed burdens your heart now? Are you praying for your mother's soul who by your doing overslept into long, long purgatorial pains? Notice the detail there. Your mother's soul, who by your doing overslept into long purgatorial pains. Gretchen's mother is dead. She also is dead. That's what it means, purgatorial pains. She's in purgatory now, working off all those sins of hers. She's dead because of the potion that Faust gave Gretchen to give to her mother. Once again, Faust killed her by Gretchen's hand. Just like Valentine condemns Gretchen for killing him, even though it was ultimately Faust who did the deed, the same is true here. Gretchen gave her mother the potion trusting Faust when she shouldn't have. Faust killed her. Faust poisoned her. So Gretchen sees her as sees herself as responsible for all of these crimes. She's the one that destroyed her family. She's the one that killed her brother. She's the one who, by giving away her honor, has made has destroyed her own life. Has made herself completely unbearable to the society around her. And while Goethe seems to stress that it's society's problem, not hers, that if you know, she was not If she would just see things clearly, she would recognize Faust has destroyed her life, society has destroyed her life, her obligations have destroyed her life, Gretchen herself is blameless, or at least very close to blameless. She can't bear it all the same. The evil spirit still holds her accountable, whether fairly or not. And so, even here in the cathedral, ultimately she passes out. She faints. She can't stand it. And somehow... For some mad reason, right here, with Gretchen fainting in church because of, you know, all the bad things that have come to pass, somehow Gerda thinks this is the right moment for a completely different scene. The Walpurgis Night scene. Like, we leave the entire thread of Gretchen's story of, you know, the story of how Faust ruined her reputation and destroyed her family and killed her brother and killed her mother, and now it's time to do some witches' Sabbath stuff. And it's weird, like, we have just this, you know, whole 20-plus page diversion where we're just dancing around with a bunch of naked witches for, like, a whole two scenes. And there's this dream sequence where all this weird shit happens. It makes no sense. It is absolutely out there. I have no idea why it's structured like this. Except insofar as Faust is diverted. Like, that's definitely coming across. This is a distraction like mephistopheles sees that everything is falling around falling down around him and to make things even worse he swoops faust out of the situation entirely and they go have fun on walpurgis night like he even stresses this when when they meet valentine um and they're talking about like seducing Gretchen, Mephistopheles mentions that it's Walpurgis night, it's time to go and be lecherous and sleep with witches and, you know, distract Faust the way that Mephistopheles said he was going to distract Faust. Give him life to experience. Now, the whole Walpurgis night thing, there's a lot of weird sort of folklory stuff surrounding this. Apparently, on Walpurgis night, you know, all the witches would come together and dance on at various unholy locations it was a celebration to satan in theory and a lot of this story seems to be invented and some of it isn't and i don't know it's very confused it Goethe is using a number of different sources, some of which are more reliable than others, but the fact of the matter is there is a tradition that says that all these witches gather on Walpurgis night to dance around and worship Satan, and so they go and do that. For the most part, we're just going to ignore it, because it's not relevant to the plot, it doesn't really, like, affect the story at all. All we need to sort of remark upon is, it is a diversion, Mephistopheles gets Faust out of the situation, so things can get worse and worse for Gretchen, because he's an asshole, because he's a demon. Like, really, what were we expecting? Um, the w- couple of things that I do want to notice, like to sort of point out, especially, are here at the end of the Walpurgis Night scene, like around page 131. Um, we meet Mr. Arcee Fantarsi, who's kind of a buzzkill. Like, here we have this big. Pile of witches all dancing and singing, and they're, you know, Faust is like dancing with the beautiful young witch who's very naked and seems to be getting rather deeply into that. And everybody's really excited to see Mephistopheles because, you know, he is Satan's representative, so he kind of runs the show here. And then Mr. RC Fantarsi shows up around line 4145. Damned spirit rabble, stop this insolence! Hasn't it been quite clearly proved to you you don't exist as proper people do? You have no standing, yet you even dance! And everyone starts complaining. Why is he here? Like, oh, he's the skeleton at all these feasts, Fouts says. Others just dance, but he evaluates. Every step we take, he thinks it must, if it's to count, be learnedly discussed. Notice, this is... This has a couple of levels going on here. On our level, we can definitely take it as Goethe condemning Enlightenment thinking. Like, Faust characterizes Mr. R.C. Fantarsi as he frequently characterized scholars at the beginning of this play. They're dissecting every little detail of what is otherwise a perfectly organic practice, you know, dancing, um, and turning it into this over rationalized, over studied, over academic practice. And Mr. Fantarsi does kind of do this. This is outrageous, he says. Why are you still here? The world has been enlightened. You must disappear. Damned lawless sprites, they dance on. Nothing daunted. We state the rules and still that house in haunted. All my life long, I've tried to sweep away this superstitious junk. It's an outrage, I say. And then the fair one responds, And clear off and stop being such a bore. Notice... He's literally standing around, surrounded by all these supernatural elements, will-o'-the-wisps and witches and magic and sorcery and demonic nonsense, and he's like, get out of here! We we beat all of you. Get out of here, all you supernatural stupid things. It's the Enlightenment! Reason is victorious! Be gone! Let reason prevail! And everyone's like, go home, Mr. R.C. Fantarsi. You are the worst. Um, so this is definitely, you know, a straightforward attack on Enlightenment thinking, and you you should keep in mind that the romantics were very interested in the occult. Like, they were sympathetic to witchcraft and, you know, sorcery and even devil worship to some degree. It was all part of the human experience. There were a lot of romantic authors who were sort of interested in this stuff in one way or another. Um, whether they were celebrating it like Goethe does or rejecting it the way that, like, Nathaniel Hawthorne does, there's degrees and and like there's depth here. There's layers to the way that romantics both sort of revere and revile the supernatural. Um at the very least, it's a fun scene. Like, Goethe it's pretty clear this scene operates in, in the territory of like what the clown and the director wanted back at the beginning in the prelude where he's talking about like the impulse to make something profound and meaningful versus the impulse to entertain versus the impulse to make money. This is a scene that's meant to entertain, and it's a scene with a lot of fancy special effects, so it'll probably make money. It's meant to be a fun interlude in the middle of this super dramatic, like, climactic romance between Goethe's Faust and Goethe's Margarita. Um, So, Mr. R.C. Fantarsi he kind of represents us in some way being like why is this scene here why are we doing all this stupid nonsense with witches when we were having a perfectly good time following this super dramatic story this doesn't make sense in short we cry and mr rc fantarsi agrees with us but notice he is wrong like Goethe wants to have his fun and his drama too Goethe wants to be able to do random scenes of devils and witches and what wed- and monkeys dancing around a cauldron, like that's fun. So shut up and stop interrupting our fun time. But Mr. R.C. Fantarsi is also a little bit more direct than that. Um, like if you check the notes uh, back at the back towards the back of your book, um, if you. Check page 170. There's a long passage there that talks about Mr. R.C. Fantarsi. Um, So Goethe is actually kind of lampooning a particularly obnoxious critic of his. Um, A famous Enlightenment-style critic who read The Sorrows of Young Werther and called it, like, romantic nonsense and, you know, overhyped, overdramatic silliness and that it had no place in this new rational world of Enlightenment values. And he even went so far as to publish a satire, like, a a parody of The Sorrows of Young Werther. And Goethe hates this guy. Like, he hates him with a burning passion. Um, and what's more, apparently this guy apparently had some weird dreams at one point. He wrote this long discursive analysis of his weird dreams and how they're all like not unmeaningful in some way. And Goethe lampoons that here, like here is Mister Super Intellectual Super Enlightenment Critic. In them surrounded by witches and witchcraft and demons and magic and supernatural powers and spirits, and all he can claim to do is say that they don't exist and that this is all just a fantasy, that this is all just a hallucination. And Goethe's like, dude, shut up. Get out. Like, you can't see what's in front of your face. This is part of the human experience, is what Goethe is kind of saying here. Like, not everything has to be math and science, nor should it be. Um, people are more complicated than that. People have dark sides, people have spiritual sides, people want magic in the world, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so again, like, I hesitate to condemn this passage all out. It certainly doesn't seem to belong here, and it's very much, like, out of place tonally, but it doesn't change the fact that it has its place in this text. It kind of does belong. Like, Life is complicated. Sometimes you go and do fun things at a party and then find out halfway through the party that something truly horrible has happened. Sometimes bad news happens when you're just having fun. The two things are not mutually exclusive, and a consistent tone isn't necessarily true to life. Goethe is kind of stressing here that tonal shifts happen in real life as well. Now, it's also worth noticing that It's here that we are sort of snapped back to reality. Faust is, you know, upset with Mr. R.C. Fantarsi, and they get rid of him, and he goes and sits in his, you know, leech-infested swamp. But then Faust is interrupted. Um, Over around line 4185, he says, Mephisto, look, right over there, a young girl stands so pale, so fair, all by herself. How slowly she moves now, as if her feet were fastened somehow. And as I look, it seems to me it's poor dear Gretchen that I see. Faust sees Gretchen in the society of all the witches and the the spirits and so on and so forth. But Mephistopheles says, let it alone. That is no wholesome vision, but a dead thing, a magic apparition. I warn you to avoid it. Come and keep your distance or it's stare will seize your living blood. Almost a stone you'll freeze. You've heard of the Gorgon, I presume. Now if you're not familiar with the Gorgons from Greek mythology, we're talking about like Medusa Um, and her two immortal sisters Um, Medusa famously had like this beautiful face but like snakes grown out of her hair um, and her gaze would turn people to stone she was one of the various monsters hanging around Greece Um, and Perseus the hero with all of his treasures given to him by like Athena and Hermes and that he's won along the way he looked in a mirrored shield so he could see and cut off the Gorgon's head and kept it as his trophy Um, And you will even remark about that here, like, Faust notices that her, how strange it is, her lovely necks arrayed with one encircling scarlet thread no wider than the edge of a knife blade. Like, there's a red line around her neck where Perseus cut off her head, and it was sort of, like, put back on, I guess? Um, And Mephistopheles even says, yeah, she can transport her head under her arm if you prefer, because Perseus beheaded her. Um, So here we run into a reminder of Gretchen. The Gorgon, at least in Goethe's version of this story, can take the form of your sweetheart, takes the form of the person you love. Um, and therefore Faust is reminded, in the midst of his unholy revels, that Gretchen is out there. And what's more, this line, the decapitation of the Gorgon, reminds him fairly sternly, that Gretchen's probably in trouble. In fact, Gretchen is in prison on the dock to be executed. She too will be decapitated in all likelihood, or receives some equally harsh punishment, likely hanged, um, a red line around her neck as well. So it's after this that we find Faust and Mephistopheles racing back to Gretchen, which the time frame on this is... Weird. It does not make sense. I do not pretend like it does. It seems like an entire year has transpired between Faust hanging out on Walpurgis Night with Mephistopheles and Faust racing back to get to Gretchen, if only because at this point Gretchen has delivered a child. At this point, surprise, that happened. Uh, But let's instead of trying to parse the scene, let's just look at it because again, the Romantics aren't terribly interested in the logic of the situation. They're interested in the emotion. And damn, if this isn't an, an emotional ride, this scene where we finally, like, catch up with Gretchen in prison. And yeah, she's in prison. This is where we find her. Um, So, let's just walk through this scene, because there's a lot happening here. Faust first arrives in the prison with his keys, with his lamp, they're come to rescue her, to sweep her off, bust her out of prison, and then carry her off so she can, you know, get somewhere to safety. Faust feels guilty about this. Gretchen is in prison, he knows, because of him. So he wants to save her for, you know, that reason, because he feels guilty. Now, whether or not there's some element of love there, that's yet to be seen. It's kind of hard to read that at this point. So he comes to the door and says that shudder comes again. How long a time since last I felt this grief for all man's woe. She lies behind this cold, damp wall I know, and her loving heart's illusion was her crime. He realizes it's it's his fault. The fact that he told Gretchen he would be faithful to her, that he loved her, and then abandoned her to go party on Night for what is apparently way too long, that's on him. Gretchen suffers because of him, and he feels terrible about this. Do I pause as I enter this place? Am I afraid to see her face? Quick, she must die if I keep hesitating so. But then we hear her, and notice, for the first time since back when they were making plans to have sex, it's Margareta again, not Gretchen. He grasped the lock. Margarita's voice sings from inside. Who killed me? Dead, my mother, the whore who ate my flesh. My father, for sure. Little sister, gathered the bones. He scattered in a cool, cool place. They lie, and then I became a birdie so fine, and away I fly, away I fly. It would seem that Margarita has lost her mind. And there are a, there's actually quite a few different sources that Goethe is using as he's constructing this scene. On the one hand, he's definitely calling back to, like, Ophelia's madness in Hamlet. Um, like, there are a lot of poems that sort of seem similar to what Ophelia sings when she's lost her mind because Hamlet has abandoned her, and because her father is dead and Hamlet has destroyed her life, as surely as Faust has destroyed Margarita's. On the other hand, she's definitely making a direct reference to a specific German story, the story of the juniper tree. And she changes it, though, to speak from the perspective of not herself, but of her child. That who killed me dead, my mother the whore, is the first glimpse we get, as unclear as it may be, that something terrible has happened to Margareta beyond the fact that she was abandoned by Faust. So Faust unlocks the door. She doesn't know her lover's listening at the door. Hearing the clank of chains, straw rustling on the floor, Margarita hides when he enters. She hides under her mattress because she assumes that he's the executioner. That she, that he has come to kill her. So she hides. Oh, oh, they're coming! Bitter death, she says. Now, again, this is terrible. Like, Margarita is now terrified, hiding from her lover because she thinks he is the executioner come to take her life for the love that she had for the person who is now there. So Faust comes in and says, quiet, quiet, I've come to set you free. And Margarita says, if you are human, then have pity on me. Faust cautions her, you'll wake the jailer, speak under your breath. He wants her to be quiet so they don't disturb people, so they aren't found out. And Margarita, still taking him for the executioner, says, Oh, hangman, who gave you this power over me? Who said you could fetch me at this midnight hour? Have pity, tomorrow morning I'll be dead. Isn't that soon enough for you? She knows she's supposed to die in the morning, that she's supposed to be executed tomorrow. Why are you so impatient, she asks him. Why do you have to hurry? Why do you have to kill me in the middle of the night? I'm still so young, she says. Still so young, too. And already I must die? I was pretty, too. And that's the reason why. My lover was with me. Now he's far away. They tore my garland off and threw the flowers away. Why are you clutching at me like this? Oh, spare me. What have I done amiss? Let me live. Must I beg you? Must I implore you in vain? I've never ever seen you before. Here Faust is clutching at her, trying to, like, shake sense into her, carry her out of a cell so he can get her to safety, and she's, she's lamenting what she has lost. She used to be young. She used to be pretty. She used to be beautiful. That was what got her in trouble. She wants her lover back, she says. My lover was with me. Now he's far away. And because of her lover, they've torn away her garland. They've torn away all of what used to be honorable to her. Her beauty doesn't matter anymore because she is of ill repute. Society has shunned her, they have rejected her, her beauty is no longer valuable, in fact it damns her all the more. It is what got her in trouble in the first place. The things she treasured now destroyed her. Now Faust says, how can I bear this anymore? And Margarita continues, I'm in your power now. I'm ready to go, she says to the executioner. Now she comes and she's accepting her death. Just let me feed my baby first, she says. I was cuddling it all last night, you know. They took it from me. That was just to hurt me. I killed it, is what they say. And now things will never be the same. They're wicked people. They sing songs against me. There's an old tale that ends that way. Who told them it meant me? The reason that Margarita is insane is not because Faust left her. The reason Margarita is insane is because she had a baby and she killed it. Like her mer- her having sex with faust made her pregnant nine months transpired she delivered the baby at this point obviously there's no way for her to hide the fact that somebody has had sex with her there's no way to hide the fact that she is you know given away her virginity and now the entire society will have nothing to do with her Nobody fed her, nobody gave her money, you know, her family is dead, so her her house has been completely disowned from her. She has nothing, she is penniless. She and her baby, she can't support it anymore, and as she'll tell us, she killed it for that reason. She killed it because she can't feed it, she can't protect it, she can't bring it up. That child will know nothing but suffering, so she kills it. And because of the murder, because of the infanticide, she is condemned to death. So Faust throws himself at her feet. It's your lover. I'm here at your feet. I came to free you from this dreadful place. He announces himself. I'm Faust. I am your lover. You keep saying you want your lover back. Well, here I am. And Margarita says, oh, let's kneel and call on the saints for grace. Look, under that stair, under that door, hell's boiling there. You can hear the voice of his angry roar. And it's not clear how sane she is at this point. Like, how she's lost her mind. She thinks she, he's the executioner. He can't, she can't see his face. She thinks that hell is at the very door. And she's not wrong. Like, she's going to die. The executioner is coming for her in the morning to execute her. Hell awaits her. There's no way out of it at this point. But here, as she kneels, as she calls on the saints for grace, Faust says, Gretchen! Gretchen! And she stops. That was my lover's voice she says and somehow she jumps to her feet and her chains fall off like she is in this prison cell she has changed the wall as is pretty normal in these dungeon scenarios as soon as faust calls her name and she jumps up realizing it's his voice the chains fall off and it's not clear why like there's no indication that mephistopheles you know is magically causing her chains to fall off. The insinuation instead is that the love that she feels for Faust is what causes her to be freed. That was my lover's voice, she says, and now she recognizes him. Where is he? I heard him call to me. No one shall stop me. I am free. To his arms I'll fly. On his breast I'll lie. He stood and called Gretchen. I recognized him through the wailing and gnashing of hell so grim, through the devil's rage, through his scorn and sneer. I knew it was his voice, so loving and dear. She doesn't recognize Faust's face, but she still recognizes his voice when he calls her name Gretchen. And notice this is the first time we've heard him say Gretchen. That nickname we've seen in the text, but it was never spoken. It was always Margareta. This implies that their intimacy went beyond what we saw, and she became his Gretchen at some point, that we didn't fully appreciate or understand. But now she hears his voice, and she wants him. She wants to run to him. To his arms I'll fly, on his breast I'll lie. This is salvation for her. She hears his voice through the devil's rage, through the wailing and gnashing of hell, through the torment that she is doomed to feel because of her crime, because of her execution. She still hears his voice. She still wants him. All the things that he did to her, she still loves him. And that love is powerful enough to break the chains off of her wrists. I am here, Faust says. And Margarita says, it is you. Oh, tell me once again, and she embraces him, hugs him. It's him, it's him. Where's all my suffering then? Where are my chains, my prison, my fear? It's you. You've come to rescue me from here, and I am saved. Just by being with him, she forgets about all of that suffering. The fact that she's in prison, the fact that she's due to be executed, the fact of her trials and her torments and her suffering and her crimes, all of that is forgotten because Faust is back with her. She loves him so much that all of the pain she's felt up to this point, all of what made her insane in the first place, disappears as soon as she is rejoined to him. I think it's here again, that street where I first saw you, and by and by we're waiting again, Martha and I in that lovely garden where we used to meet. She's re-experiencing their relationship. She's not in her prison cell, she's back... On the street, that first time that Faust said, let me escort you home, and she's like, I can take care of myself, thanks. She's back to the the garden outside of Martha's house where they were walking together. She's experiencing their relationship start to finish all over again. Now Faust doesn't have time for this. Come, come with me, she says. And Margarita says, oh, stay. I love being anywhere when you're not away. She doesn't care whether she's in a prison cell or in actually in the garden or wherever they might be. It doesn't matter to her. All that matters is that they're together. That's all that matters. That's all that has ever mattered to her, at least since, you know, she fell in love with him. Just as we talked about how pure, how good, how truly virtuous she is, her love is that true as well. Like, it is profound. It is so profound that, you know... It leads her to disregard all of her pain and suffering. All she needs is to be with her beloved. That's it. Like, not in some trite way, like in some pop song or something. Like, literally, she is transformed. She is calmed just by the fact that she is with Faust, that she is with her lover. Now, Faust is like, no, don't delay, or we shall have to pay more bitterly for this. He's still focused. we got to get you out of here. We have to save you. They're coming for you in the morning. But Margarita doesn't care anymore. What, you've forgotten so soon how to kiss, she asks? Like, they're reunited. Why aren't you kissing me, she wants to know. Why isn't everything back to normal? Because, you know, here we are, together again. That's what matters. Who cares where we are? Who cares what's happening in the morning? Who cares about the future at all? We are back together now. Let's enjoy this. Let's embrace. Kiss me. We're together again, my sweetest friend. And our kissings come to an end? In your arms, why do I tremble so? A whole heaven used to close in on me. You spoke and you looked so lovingly. I was stifled with kisses you never let go. Oh, kiss me now. Or I'll show you how. And she kisses him. Oh. Your lips are are dumb. They have nothing to say. Why has your love gone cold? Who can have come between us to take it away? And she turns away from him. Margareta loves Faust so powerfully that it transforms her entire world. Faust doesn't love her like that. He did. Or he thought he did. Or she thought he did. Somehow there was a time when the two of them had that communion, that congress. They believed that about each other. But whatever it was that Faust felt before, it's gone now. Your lips are dumb. They've nothing to say. This is the most heart-wrenching part of this whole play, in my opinion. Like, others may disagree. But seriously, here is Margarita, having suffered all of this terrible, awful shit. Her mother is dead, her brother is dead. Remember her little sister? She died long ago, and she bore it all. She handled it. I would do it all again, she says about her little sister. Faust, killed her entire all the rest of her family all of her life she was 100 percent devoted to them and he took them all away and then finally there was some gleam in this he also gave her a child that she couldn't support and she had to kill for its own sake the one thing she still had was his love she still loved him despite all of this despite all of the horrible shit that he has done to her She loves him still, enough that when he shows up, all he has to do is say her name, and the chains fall off her, and everything is good again. It's like nothing ever changed. Because nothing has changed for Margarita. It doesn't matter, all those deaths, all those tragedies, all those curses, all that imprisonment. It doesn't matter. Because she still loves him every bit as fervently as she did back in scene 19. But things have changed for him. He was sleeping around with those pretty witches. She was just a passing fancy for him. As much as, you know, this was all because Mephistopheles' elaborate plot forced Faust in the situation that he couldn't actually marry her. No. Faust knew that this was going to happen. That's why he says, you snake, you snake, to Mephistopheles when they're in the cavern earlier. Faust doesn't love Margarita. Certainly not the way Margarita loves him. And at this moment, she realizes it. At this moment, everything is gone. The last thing she had, her love for Faust, is revealed to be a lie. So Faust says, you know, come, follow me, darling, you must be bold, I'll hug you later on ten thousandfold, just follow me now, it's all I ask of you. Margarita says, but is it you? Can it be really true? Are you really Faust? Are you really the man I love? Like, you don't look like him, you sound like him, but you don't love me like he did. So, you know, how, how can I possibly know that, that you are my lover? She's in denial at this moment. She's like, no, you can't be Faust, because Faust loved me. And Faust responds, come, come, the deep night's giving away to dawn, but for Margarita, there's no dawn. My mother is dead, she says, and she's reliving this. I poisoned her, you see. I drowned my child when it was born. Hadn't it been God's gift to you and me? To you as well. It is you. Can I trust this not to be a dream? Your, your hand, your dear hand, oh, but it's wet. You must wipe off the blood. To me, there seem to be bloodstains on it. Oh my God, what did you do? Put away your sword, I beg of you. Now she realizes. Now in her insanity, she's reliving this ex- these experiences, coming to the conclusion that no, Faust killed her mother. Faust killed her brother. She had this baby, this gift for them both, and he didn't take care of it. He sentenced it to die as surely as she did by drowning it. This is Faust's fault. He never loved her. It was always a lie. Forget what happened, Faust says. Let it be. You were killing me. Oh no, Margarita says. You must survive. I'll tell you about the graves now. I'll describe them to you. You must arrange all this, tomorrow as ever is. You must choose the places. Mother must have the best, and my brother right next to her with his, and me a little further off. Because she doesn't deserve to be with them. Not too far, just far enough. And my little baby at my right breast, there'll be no one else to lie with me, she says. When I clung to your side so tenderly, oh, that was so blessed, a joy so sweet, but I can't seem to do it now as I could. When I come, I seem to be dragging my feet, and you seem to be pushing me back somehow, yet it's still you. You're still gentle and good. If you feel that it's me, come with me now, Faust says. Out there? Marguerite asks. Into freedom. If my grave's out there, if death is waiting, come with me. No, for from here to my everlasting tomb, and not one step further, I'll go. You're leaving? Oh, Heinrich, if only I could come. Margareta, at this moment, wants to die. As she says, if death is waiting, come with me. Join me. Let's be dead together. Accompany me. At this point, she's going to lie in her grave alone with her baby, she hopes. It's the only other person who will bear her contact. The child that she killed. That's the only company she has. She asks Faust, join me. Come die with me. And that honestly would be the most honorable thing he could do. He should have been faithful to her. He should have let Mephistopheles kill him and take his soul to hell. He's going there anyway. What's the point? Might as well do something good to the woman he loves than, you know, screw her over as well as he screws himself over. But Faust won't. You can, he says, just want to. I've opened the door. All we have to do is go outside. All we have to do is escape. And she says, I can't leave. For me, there's no hope anymore. What's the use of escaping? They'll be watching for me. It's so wretched to have to beg one's way through life, and with a bad conscience, too, and to wander abroad, and if I do, in the end, they'll catch me anyway. Margarita doesn't want to live. She killed her own baby. She has no wealth. She's going to Egg for the rest of her life, and the most she can expect is Faust's pity? Because he doesn't love her. No, she'd rather die. All she can hope for at this point is that Faust come with her. I'll stay with you always, Faust says, and Margarita says, oh, quick, oh quick, save your poor baby, just... Follow the path, up the stream, uphill, over the bridge, the woods just beyond, in there, on the left, by the fence. He's in the pond. Oh, catch hold of him. He's struggling still. He's trying to swim. Save him. Save him. She relives the moment when she's killing her own child, when she casts him into the pond. If Faust wanted to be with her, wouldn't he have been there for that? Wouldn't he have protected her from that? Wouldn't that never have had to come to pass? No, they're separated, irrevocably. As much as Margarita wants to spend time with him now, even in her insanity, she realizes that's not possible. And she just goes deeper and deeper into it. Oh, quick, let's get to the other side of the hill. My mother sits on a stone up there. Oh, it's cold. I'm so terrified. My mother's sitting up there on a stone. She's wagging her head. She's all alone, not beckoning, not nodding her poor heavy head. She slept so long that she'll never wake. She slept so that we could be happy in bed. Oh, those were good times and no mistake. She relives the death of her mother while she and Faust were having sex. But as soon as Faust says, if persuasion's no use, if that's how it must be, I'll have to carry you off with me. And Marguerite says, don't touch me. Put me down. No, no. I will not be compelled. Don't clutch me so. I was always willing, as well you know. The day's dawning. Oh, sweetheart, sweetheart, the day. Yes, it's day. The last day dawning. I thought it would be my wedding morning. Now you've been with Gretchen, don't tell anyone. Oh, my garland's spoilt. What's done is done. We'll meet later on, but I shan't be dancing. I can't hear them, but the crowd's advancing. There are so many there. The streets and the square are all full. The bell tolls, they break the white rod. Oh, how they bind me and seize me. Oh, God, now I'm on the execution chair, and at every neck in this whole great throng, the blade strikes when that sword is swung. The world lies silent as the grave. As she's been re-experiencing her past traumas, the things that she did to her mother, to her baby, now she re-experiences what will happen. The execution. And notice how how she clarifies it. At every neck in this great throng, the blade strikes when the sword is swung. Gretchen represents everyone. They're executing everyone. The systems of power, the politicians, the systems of societal repression she recognizes that they are going to execute us all in the end no one is exempt from that as much as you know the crowd will cheer when gretchen the infanticide is killed she knows that she was just a victim on some level she sees her death just as it may be to be a death that awaits us all Now Faust says, oh, why was I born at such a cost? And Mephistopheles shows up. Come, one more moment and you're lost. What's all this dallying, parleying, and dithering? My night seeds are quivering. The sun's nearly risen. Time is running out, Mephistopheles says. And Margarita shrinks away. What's that? It came out of the floor of my prison. It's him. It's him. Send him away. He can't come. This place is sacred today. He wants me. Somehow her prison cell is sacred to her. And she will not bear Mephistopheles, the devil, the sort of architect of all of her suffering, of all of her pain, of all of this evil, to be here, where she is planning to die. As she has spent it, thinking about her mother, about her baby, about her life with Faust, about all the good things in the world that she used to have. Get him out. He doesn't belong here. Faust says, you're to live And Margarita says, oh my God, I await your righteous judgment. It doesn't matter what Faust says anymore. It doesn't matter what he's offering. She doesn't want to leave. She doesn't want to be saved. There's no salvation out there for her. She's already doomed. The best she can hope for is to die in the morning. Mephistopheles pulls Faust away. Come, come, or I'll leave you both to your fate. And Margarita starts praying. Oh, Father, save me. Do not reject me. I am yours. Oh, holy angels, receive me under your wings. Surround me. Protect me. Heinrich, you frighten me. She prays at this last moment for forgiveness, and it's hopeless. She killed her own baby. She threw away... Her virtue for the sake of this man who abused her with the help of his demonic friend. She was complicit in murdering every member of her family. She destroyed every chance she has at salvation. And Mephistopheles shouts, she is condemned. She's doomed. She's damned. And yet here we have a voice from above. She is redeemed. And I should hesitate to mention this is a new passage. Like, if you know all through the scene of the prison, with the exception of the very first page, you'll see like up at the top right where I talked about you know what part of the of the drafting process was this written, and you'll see it says Erfaust and first edition. This is one of those you know passages that that was in the Urfaust, but then Goethe revised it fairly heavily. So there are a lot of chunks here that weren't in the original version that were added or subtracted later on. This line, a voice from above saying she is redeemed, is only in the final version, the final draft. In the Urfaust, there's no indication that she's saved. Which means that Goethe changed his mind. Goethe changed his mind in a dramatic, radical way. Goethe decided somewhere in that 30-year period between him starting the first draft of Faust and publishing it in 1806 that Gretchen deserved to live. That she had somehow earned eternal life. And this is very different from what Christianity would typically say here. Gretchen's sins are on her conscience. Maybe, according to the Protestant tradition, all she needs to do is apologize, as she does here, and she's fine. Maybe that's up in the air, maybe not. It doesn't change the fact she is a sinner. She killed her own child. She committed mortal sins by sleeping with Faust and by committing infanticide. There is no hope for her. And yet Goethe says she is redeemed. She suffered. And that suffering is what redeems her remember this god of this universe the god of the prelude back in scene three said that it is suffering it is striving man errs till he has ceased to strive and she has made some serious errors she has made some terrible errors but at the same time she never stopped loving faust and that love is something pure and real And it means something. It is enough to get her into heaven. And that's not all. Here, our end is Mephistopheles pulling Faust away as Margarita shouts from the cell offstage, Heinrich, Heinrich, and the curtain closes. The end of Faust Part 1. We do not get to see whether Faust is saved or damned, whether he ultimately succumbs in his bargain and wager to Mephistopheles. But in Faust Part 2, we do see it. In Faust Part 2, Faust has lots of lots of wild adventures with Mephistopheles, as we would expect. They go harass Charles V, they go do a lot of stuff that we saw in Marlowe, and a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't see in Marlowe, and bunches of adventures from the Faust book, and bunches of stuff that Goethe is making up off the top of his head. It is wild. It is unpredictable, and strange, and crazy, and, like, I don't think anybody has ever seriously performed it, or it's just, it's like all the weird stuff that we know from Faust Part 1, like if you ramp all that up to 11 and turn down the plot, that's Faust Part 2. It is even more disconnected and strange. Even more poetic and sort of like imagistic. But at the end of it, Faust actually does settle down. He founds himself a nation. He runs a city. He governs farmers. He makes himself a happy place. And because he settles mephistopheles comes to claim him and what ensues is not mephistopheles just like picking him up and taking him to hell instead there's a battle the angels and the demons battle over faust's corpse they battle over his soul and at the end the angels win somehow mephistopheles is robbed of his corpse and he's even like annoyed by this He believes that it is unjust, that he had won it. Where do I sue now as complainer, he says? Who will enforce my well-earned right? You have been fairly cheated, old campaigner. You have deserved it, grim enough, your plight. This thing was wretchedly mishandled. A great expense for shame is thrown away. A vulgar lust. Absurd amours have dandled the seasoned devil of his prey. If to this childish, fatuous spree one so experienced could descend, then no mean folly it must be that seized upon him in the end. He was robbed. It was all a waste of time. He feels like it was all just a joke at his expense. Which, it kind of was. Remember, even from the beginning, God said, He is my servant, he serves me confusedly, but he is mine, and I will have him. Like, you can't argue with God when he lays down a proclamation like that. It was always a waste of time on Mephistopheles' part. But then we get a scene of angels... Of all these heavenly beings singing for the lives of Faust, and I won't go into the whole thing because it's a lot, but importantly, right at the end of the text, we see a familiar face. In the stage directions it says, A penitent else called Gretchen. Incline thou past comparing, thou radiance bearing, thy grace upon my happiness, the early cherished, no longer blemished, returns to bliss. And a bunch of blessed boys circle together and say he already outgrows us in bodily might. True cares that he owes us will richly requite. We early were riven from earthly creatures he, wise and living, will fitly teach us. And again we have Gretchen. Mid spirit choirs fresh life commencing the novice scarce regains his wit. The heavenly host but dimly sensing already he has merged with it. Behold! How all terrestrial cumbrance of worn-out guise cast off at length. In first ethereal adumbrance he issues forth in youthful strength. Vouchsafe me through new morn to lead him. Too bright as yet for him to see. Gretchen speaks on Faust's behalf. Gretchen leads him into salvation. In short, Faust will be saved because Gretchen loved him. And because... On some level, imperfect though it may have been, and as short-lived as it may have been, he loved her too. Faust will be saved by Gretchen's love. And it gets even weirder, like the Mater Gloriosa, presumably Mary herself, says, Come, soar to higher spheres, precede him, he will divine and follow thee. And then Dr. Marianus gaze to meet the saving gaze, contrite all and tender, for a blissful fate your ways thankfully surrender. May each noble mind be seen, eager for thy service, holy virgin, mother, queen, goddess, pour thy mercies. And then, at last, the mystical chorus, all that is changeable is but reflected, the unattainable here is affected, human discernment here is passed by, the eternal feminine draws us on high. And Goethe concludes, Finis, the end. Except this really was the end. This is like the last word he wrote before dying. Faust Part II was published like either right before or right after his death. So the last sort of philosophical insight he gives us is that this is beyond human perception, beyond human discernment. We aren't meant to understand it. The eternal feminine draws us on high. This mysterious feminine quality somehow represented in Mary, the mother of God, the Mater Gloriosa, the Mater Dolorosa, the sad woman and the glorified woman, represented in Gretchen, the mother who both like, suckled the child that she did not have, protected it, and then when she had her ba- baby, killed it for its own protection. She too is glorified here. Goethe is painting suffering as the key that gets you into heaven, as something greater than all of the Christian mysteries, as something greater than all rational inquiry. This is so romantic. Like, again, romantic in the terms of romanticism, not romance. But this is how he sees it. This is how God works in Goethe's mind this is how the universe works. Faust struggled, and he struggled honestly. As much as he did ultimately lie about, you know, passing or bearing witness for the death of Martha's husband, as much as he did lie to Gretchen, he was honestly trying to figure out how to do life. He never stopped until that very end when he finally found something that brought him peace, that brought him quiet, that brought him satisfaction. And there wasn't anything necessarily wrong about that either. But what's more, the suffering of Gretchen, the the love that she felt for him, pure and unadulterated, even to the last, even after she had realized how awful he had been, how terrible he had destroyed her life, the fact that she still loved him was enough to redeem him. Notice how different this is from the Faust stories we've seen thus far. Like, Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, you know, he's not willing to turn aside. And as a result, he is damned. He refuses to leave the path of his sin. He refuses to acknowledge the mercy of Christ. He refuses to believe that he can be saved, and so he he isn't. He is damned. The devils pull him down to hell. Notice that, you know, all the stuff that we talked about with devils and and Dante and with with, uh, Milton... Again, you have this emphasis like, here are the Christian laws, here is what you have to do, you have to believe in Jesus, you have to follow what he directs. Instead, Faust's literally said that, you know, he doesn't want to call it God, that words just get in the way, and yet he is saved anyhow. Whatever feeling he had was holy, and the Romantics consider it as important as Christian truth as found in the Bible. On one level, this is absolutely blasphemy, and almost any Orthodox Christian would say so. The Romantics, however, believe it. They see this as truth. And this is going to drive a lot of the changes that take place in the 19th century, as we'll talk about later. This is what religion has come to be, come to mean. And in some way, I suspect that it sounds right to you. Like, this sounds familiar with a lot of the ways that people understand religion. How, you know, God may or may not be out there, but this religious feeling is somehow still powerful, meaningful, and true. This has a lot of sway. The way that Goethe is talking about religion is not going to be alone. And notice, too, that this is acceptable. Like, nobody, nobody condemns Goethe for this. Nobody bans this, like they did with Don Juan. Nobody, you know, the Catholic Church doesn't get upset over Goethe's Faust Part 2. Or if they do, it doesn't matter anymore. Europe is ready to hear it anyway. Europe wants to hear this. The Church no longer wields enough power to say this is not true. And, you know, people believe it. Now people believe Goethe. Now poets and writers have as much sway as the Church does in a lot of ways. At the very least, I want you to think about this, how this represents this major sea change that has occurred over the, like, 400 years since we started, you know, the Renaissance. I want you to recognize that this, that Christianity, religion, values, and morality, these have all been transforming steadily over this period, you know, through the Renaissance and their increased focus on humanity and sort of the goodness of the human body and human love, all the way to this point where Christian teaching becomes secondary to humanity and human love and human feeling. Where Faust can say, why call it God? All I know is the feeling. And there are a lot of people that agree with this. That's what I'm saying when I'm Talking about, like, all of the changes, about locating each of these works in its moment in time. Faust is relentlessly romantic. It is very much something that could only exist in the 19th century and beyond. If somebody had published it under the Renaissance, it would never have made it to, to, to shelves. Like, the Catholic Church would have stomped on it, or, you know, people would think it too offensive or too graphically sexual to publish people wouldn't even read it. It would be offensive to them. This is a product of this particular artistic moment. It existed because Goethe tapped into what a lot of people were thinking and feeling at this moment in time. That's how things are changing, and they're going to continue to change. Like, I know that we've blown through 400 years, we've only got like 200 to go, but a lot more is going to change in those 200 years. A lot more priorities are going to shift. So, be aware of this. And think about this. Think about whether or not Gertz is right. Whether or not Gretchen should be forgiven for her crimes. I mean, she killed her baby! Much as I may downplay her complicity in this, much as I may blame Faust for this, ultimately she did make the decision, and yet she is redeemed. Is that fair? Is that right? Is that just? Should Faust be redeemed for all of the horrible shit he did to to her? for killing her entire family, for destroying her reputation, for driving her to insanity, and all without actually loving her? Should he be, in fact, forgiven? Those are the questions that bother me about this text, for sure. And as much as this text is this really important, powerful, meaningful thing, it's important and powerful and meaningful precisely because they do bother us. These questions are troubling. Like, that ending in the prison cell of Faust Part 1 is painful. You know, Margarita screaming his name as Mephistopheles and he flee, knowing that she is going to die in the morning. Like, what? What? That's awful. Like, it's rare that you see something that awful in contemporary, like, media or books or whatever. That's a freaking emotional scene. So think about that. Think about how to respond to this. How you understand this stuff. If you disagree with the way that Goethe is presenting this. Or if you agree. That's why we read this stuff. That's why it continues to be powerful. Even 200 years after it was written. Anyway... That's Faust. Four lectures later we've successfully covered it. Um, For the next class we are going to do the midterm so we will definitely be talking about Faust on there. Be sure to look over the review sheets um, and feel free to email me ask me any questions about the midterm if you have concerns. I'm sure I'll probably talk about it in the announcements or something but even so again like make sure you do that. through next week. Um, there will also be two other little assignments, both romantic. Um, one is our assignment for um, The Devil and Tom Walker, which is a fun little American romantic uh, short story. And then we're also going to read a chunk of By- Byron's Don Juan, um, and there will be a response paper attached to that as well. So hopefully, like I'm, that's it for next week. We're not going to do a whole full full four assignments. I figure the midterm and the response paper are more than enough, um, and then we'll start talking about like big papers in the weeks to come. Um, so stay tuned, more lectures to follow, definitely do the midterm, and feel free to ask me any questions if you have trouble with any of these assignments.